What a day, what a day, what a day. Welcome to the JT The Brick Show. You know, when you put the silver and black uniform on, you get such a surge of energy. It's time for the JT The Brick Show. And a lot of football players around the country that want to wear that silver and black. JT The Brick. When you talk about the Raiders, everyone knows you talk about the Raiders. On Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. Here's your host, JT The Brick. Out of the gate, JT with you as we open up the week on Raider Nation Radio, 920 a.m. And that beautiful Raiders mobile app where you can stream the show whenever you want live. Just download that Raiders mobile app for free and then just click on the radio in the right-hand corner. And the next thing you know, we got a national radio show throughout the Raider Nation where Phil Villapiano and his daughter listen in New Jersey. Fred Bolitnikoff, you heard this morning, listens from home. And it's great. Because without that app, you know, app, without that app, I'm sitting here today going, all right, let's go. Vegas, are you ready for Raiders in June and July? And I'd be struggling. That app is everything. So if you're listening on the app, let us know when you call in. And we want to hear where the Raider Nation is. And it's part of what we're doing to relaunch this show coming up here in the fall during Raider season. It's going to be a bigger presence on my show with the callers, where they're from, what they're doing, and how we're going to tie the Raider Nation in globally because it's just a lot of Raider fans coming to Vegas and making plans to come to Vegas here, and they're doing it now. Matter of fact, if you're a Raider fan and you haven't done it by now, I would hope that you would kind of get going with that and book some hotel rooms and some flights and figure out where you're going to stay and what you're going to do because this is going to jump on you really quick. Really quick, this is going to jump on you. I don't want you to sit at home on a Wednesday going, man, I want to go to Vegas this weekend. Raiders are at home, and what am I going to do? you got to put that plan together now, and I can help you with that plan. And we can talk about that going forward. So Raider Nation, unite. Everybody's still on vacation. I'll be doing the show tomorrow from the Raider facility, and then I'm going to get out of here midweek and go on a little vacation with my wife for the first time since God knows how long, throughout COVID or whatever. Uh, kids are getting a little bit older, and we're able to uh, get out of Dodge for a little bit, as I said, and uh, not boil like a baked potato in this town for a couple of weeks. So short week for me as I'm hitting the road, but I just had a great Vegas weekend. Man, the opening of Resorts World was insane. If you get a chance and you're in Vegas or you're coming into town, carve out some time to go to Resorts World. Congratulations to Scott Sabella, the president, and his entire team for the grand opening Thursday night. It was fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. It blew me away. And not a lot blows you away anymore, but Derek Stevens blew everybody away with Circa. And now we're going to see the sphere open up for concerts coming here. Allegiant Stadium obviously been open for a while now. And the addition of Resorts World. Wow. I mean, I had a blast there over the weekend. That was really cool. And then I went to the fights on Saturday night. I brought my sons to see Lomachenko fight. Uh, We ran into Mark Davis a few times, the owner of the Raiders, who loves sports. He owns the Aces. He sits ringside with Bob Arum at the fight. So we had a fun time with him as I tweeted out a photo at JT the Brick. So let's get this week going, and we're going to start off with saying goodbye to the Vegas Golden Knights. As you know, I spent a lot of time on this channel, on this platform, talking about the Golden Knights because I love the team. I'm a fan of the team. I want the team to win. I gave up the team of my youth for this team, and I really thought they were going to win the Stanley Cup this year. 
along with a lot of people. A lot of people thought they were going to win the Stanley Cup, and they didn't. And it is a major disappointment. I had the Islanders and the Golden Knights starting tonight for two weeks of content right in my wheelhouse, and now I got nothing. I got nothing because this team came up short again when it mattered most. But after digesting this loss for a couple of days, and I was inside Resorts World at the Remy Martin Bar, which was incredible inside Resorts World for the overtime loss. And I looked at a couple of my friends at the time. I said, that just didn't happen, did it? Yeah, it happened. It always seems to happen. You know, Vegas has had a couple of franchise wins in the playoffs that are dramatic, but this team gets their heart ripped out through their chest when it matters most. So I think if you look at it as glass half empty, you have to say Vegas came up short again. They were the better team, and they were the better team. They were better than Montreal. That's what makes us so disappointing. But then on the other side, Vegas gave us a vastly entertaining season. And these guys competed with COVID with no fans and then limited fans and full capacity. The players were under lockdown. There was only so many things they could do. And we got a chance to really come together as a community and watch the Golden Knights go on a deep playoff run. I mean, this is a very young team. And every year they're going to the conference finals or the conference semis. They've already been to a Stanley Cup final. That is very impressive. Unbelievably impressive. And I'm really impressed with the way this organization is built and the way they built it. Bill Foley built a winner. We know they're a winner. Obviously, they're playing for the President's Trophy the last game of the year. And his team was good enough to win the Stanley Cup. This team was good enough to win the Stanley Cup, and they're not going to do it. So do you want to go sky is falling and break up the team and all of that? No, because I think this team is on track still with a lot of youth, a lot of good veterans, the two-goalie situation, and win a Stanley Cup. I think they should have won one by now, which is remarkable that I could even say that, considering the Montreal Canadiens have won 24 Stanley Cups. Montreal Canadiens have won 24 Stanley Cups. Vegas has won none, but they were just born. But this one was a gut-wrencher, and they lose again. So very disappointing, very disappointing. Uh, Let's get to the Martinez goal that tied it up at two in the third period when this game was going back and forth in game six, and this was the moment that I thought Vegas was back and they stole all the momentum. Here's Carlson out high in the slot. Petrangelo shoots, glove save, Price, rebound, score! Price could not secure it. Vegas has tied the game. Alec Martinez poked it through the legs. You got to win the game at that point. You tie the game up. You got to win the game right there if you're Vegas. You tie it up at two on the road. All the momentum comes back, but they weren't able to do it. Let's get to the game-winning goal in overtime, and this is a goal we'll never forget. Leading his man down the middle, Dan Oates to the left, the shot, they score! Montreal wins! Stanley Cup bound in 2021. 3-2 Canadians. Unbelievable professional call by Dan Duba. A lot of these guys that are left doing play-by-play, they just sound like a shrinking, shrieking 12-year-old girl at the movies who got scared with their high-pitched voices. Dan Duba's fantastic. And that's it. Season's over. Season's over, and they're out of it. So, again, this is kind of my wrap-up show for the Golden Knights. Tonight would have been game one of the Stanley Cup, 
and we would have had this to talk about tonight. I'd be, I'd probably be taking off work tonight from my national show to go to the game. I'm not, I wouldn't, I was not going to miss. I was not going to miss the Stanley Cup and, and try to go to a couple of games, and now I don't have to worry about it. Gut wrenching loss. Uh, excellent season for Vegas. A lot of better moments and bad moments, but they didn't get it done when it mattered most, and that is really a concern. I think a lot of Vegas fans have the right to be depressed by this. But I would pat the team on the back. They gave us a lot of excitement, a lot of fun when we go to the games and they bring the community together. I cannot believe that I'm opening up my show on Monday, brought to you by PT's, official partner of the Vegas Golden Knights, and we don't have the Stanley Cup in this city. That is devastating to be that close to a team like Montreal that was average all year long and we couldn't beat Montreal. Not able to beat Montreal. Look, if you lose in the final to Tampa Bay, okay. But you got to beat Montreal. Tip of the cap to the Canadians and their fans. They were the better team. And for all the players that disappeared on Vegas, who just disappeared, all the goal scorers, maybe they have to tweak it again. Maybe they have to take a look and try to find a goal scorer that's more clutch. And the captain, Mark Stone, Alec Petrangelo, of the leaders of the team, very disappointing because this team is a better roster than the team that went to the Stanley Cup in their inaugural season, and they didn't win it again. It wasn't a choke. It wasn't a choke. They went to overtime in game six. That is a that is a nice run. It's just very disappointing. All right, Vinny Bonsignor is going to join us here, our teammate, at the top of the hour. He wrote the cover story on Sunday in the Las Vegas Review-Journal, leading by example. Breaking Barriers, part of the Raiders' legacy. And on the cover of the paper, it has Carl Nassif, Art Shell, Tom Flores, and Amy Trask. And how all of those individuals broke the ceiling when it came to diversity in this league, uh, dating back to Al Davis, now with Mark Davis. So Vinny wrote an amazing column, and we're going to talk to uh, him about it at the top of the hour. Also, Mike Ciani is going to join us, former Raiders Super Bowl wide receiver. What an early great career he had with the Raiders, playing on legendary teams behind Fred Bolitnikoff, taking over for Warren Wells, with Cliff Branch breaking into the league. He should have a lot of good stories. He's great friends with Phil Villapiano. So Mike Ciani will join us at the bottom of the hour. We'll talk to him. And also Kurt Heelan will join us in a little bit. Uh, Kurt Heelan from Basketball Talk on NBC Sports about the NBA playoffs which is pretty much my focus now. There is breaking news today, and we'll turn around a little bit of the sound a little bit later on. Scottie Pippen, former Bulls legend, calls Phil Jackson a racist on the Dan Patrick Show. So that's going to be the biggest story in sports today, and we'll have a piece of that sound to play for you a little bit later on. You know, Pippen is trending right now for the wrong reasons. Dan Patrick said to Scottie Pippen, quote, By saying it was a racial move, then you're calling Phil Jackson a racist. Pippen, I don't have a problem with that. And then Dan Patrick says, do you think Phil was a racist? And Pippen said, oh, yeah. So that was Scottie Pippen on Phil's decision to have Kukoc take the final shot against the Knicks. You know, there are a lot of things that people say about race in this country. I'm just a white guy behind a microphone. That's all I am. But I I grew up. I grew up with diversity in my life and inclusion in New York. I had a ton of black friends in high school in New York, and my parents didn't have a negative racial bone in them, period, 
as my father was born the son of an immigrant who came from Italy and had to fight his way through everything in life early in his life. Okay, I've never seen color in my life. If you know me and we broke bread or had beers together and you've listened to me for 25 minutes or 25 years, you know where I stand on diversity when it comes to race and what I believe about unity and bringing people together. But man, oh man, sports radio now is all about race. There are race baiters on the radio. There are race baiters who are involved on social media. And that's really what gets everybody going. So it's a long soundbite. We're going to play it later in the show, but it's worth you hearing earlier today from Dan Patrick's show and what Scottie Pippen had to say on that issue. In regards to the Raiders, I was watching a radio show today on television for a few moments, and again, the Raiders roster, this is describing what Tom Brady might have said about Derek Carr or another quarterback when he was thinking about going to another team other than the Buccaneers. And a radio host talked about why would Brady come to the Raiders with an inferior, quote, inferior roster. You know, I'm getting sick of this crap about hearing how inferior the Raiders roster is. The Raiders have a Super Bowl contending offense. Fact, not fiction. They have a top 10 offense that I think probably got better from a skill position a piece today, you know, in this offseason, potentially, even though they lost Nelson Aguilar. Nelson Aguilar put up a lot of numbers, and he got paid for it. And the Raiders weren't going to pay him that type of money to stick around and come back. So with that being said, the Raiders lost three offensive linemen, one who was a bum in Trent Brown, who didn't want to be here. Rodney Hudson, I only have great things to say about. And Gabe Jackson, no doubt in my mind, very good Raider, but replaceable with injuries and his contract, replaceable. And I think the Raiders now have depth on the offensive line. Now, the fact that the Raiders have had upheaval on the offensive line means there is a chance that the Raiders' offense wouldn't be better than it was last year. I disagree with that because I think Waller is now going to be a perennial pro bowler going forward. I think Henry Ruggs is going to be a bigger part of the offense. I'm a believer in Renfro. Edwards to me, looks like a young Des Bryant. Uh, I know that John Brown and Willie Sneed are really good pros along with Zay Jones. And I just think that this offense, with the addition of Drake, the running back, who can put up unbelievable numbers as a receiver in the backfield, and I have a, I have an idea that Gruden is already putting in plays to get him going again. That could be very unique. And Josh Jacobs, I wanted to spend a few minutes on Josh Jacobs here in the monologue on a Monday. A lot of people are worried about the amount of touches that Josh Jacobs is getting. Is he getting too many touches? Is he breaking down late in the season? Can he handle all the hits that he's taking? Well, that's a very good question because he played at Alabama and he didn't have a lot of touches until later in his Alabama career. And now as he comes to the Raiders, he's supposed to be the workhorse. Look, the Raiders are going to have to make a decision sooner than later on Josh Jacobs. They're either going to want to sign him long-term to his second contract as a running back, or they're going to look around and say, look, we can get a running back anywhere. We can get a running back in the second or third round. He might not be Josh Jacobs. I think they want to keep Josh Jacobs. I think he's the potential star of this team. And they got to get him the ball more. And they got to find a way to get him the ball more in space, which they weren't able to do last year. Because other teams that stuffed the box – It was pretty evident when Josh Jacobs was going to get the ball. Either Alec Ingold was leading him, 
as the fullback, and the whole world knew that Josh was going to get the ball handed off up the middle, and by the time he got the ball, it was a one-yard loss or no gain. So this year, I think Gruden's going to have a lot more motion, going to be a lot more movement. There's going to be a lot more distractions at the line of scrimmage, and Derek Carr is going to change a lot of plays, hopefully to the advantage of Kenyon Drake and Josh Jacobs. So I think the offense is really looking good. On the defensive side of the ball, I had a really good conversation with Raider, Hall of Fame legend fan Raider Mort today. I talk to Mort every day. Many people know who Raider Mort is. And we talked about the defense and how many opportunities there are for other people to play. And we were talking about the safety position, about Trayvon Merrick. And Mort had a really deep dive with me because he was there for every game. He's never missed a game. And we talked about the young George Atkinson and how George Atkinson came in as a corner but when they moved him to strong safety because Jack Tatum was at free safety and both of them were nasty, nasty football players who would put a beat down on anybody who came across the field. Now, the sport has changed, as we all know, since Atkinson and Tatum and Skip Thomas and Lester Hayes and Mike Haynes and the great Willie Brown. And Raider Mort made something really clear to me. Mort talked about the fact that Willie Brown the Hall of Fame corner was the difference in all of it because Willie was able to be a blanket on whatever receiver was there. When back in the day when Willie Brown played, you could touch a receiver all the way down the field. And Willie was big and strong, and Willie had unbelievable technique. Willie could catch the football if it was thrown at him. Willie could tackle in space. Willie Brown could do everything that the Raiders are hoping that their bonus baby first-round corners and second-round corners can do when they haven't proved that they can do yet. And by Willie Brown playing lockdown corner well before Deion Sanders came to the league and other great corners, is that Willie made it easier for Tatum and Atkinson to understand their role, and there was just linebackers like Hendricks and Villapiano, and they put fear into every opponent. There was fear when Russ Francis lined up at tight end that he was going to get his helmet ripped off if the refs weren't looking. They were going to take him to the ground face first and bury him in the ground. Now again, I understand you can't do that in this modern era, but the Raiders of old put their hands on people at the line of scrimmage, and those other teams, even if they were great, Kansas City, Miami, Pittsburgh, whoever it was, they knew they were in for a war when they went up against the Raiders. That hasn't happened in a long time with the Raiders now in the modern era. They don't put the fear into any opponent on defense. They don't have players like Ted Hendricks. They don't have Lyle Alzado. They don't have Howie Long. They don't have Skip Thomas. They don't have George Atkinson. They don't have players like this. But now, now, Merrig and Abram bring about that mindset where they can play free safety and strong safety, put their hands on people, tackle hard in space, and be intimidators. Trayvon Mullen played at the highest level of Clemson, an MVP in a national championship game, a very good, talented, good-sized, long cornerback. And then Arnett, who was a reach pick, everybody knows he was a reach pick, that, that is not debatable anymore that he was a reach pick. He's someone that's got to develop, and now Casey Hayward comes in, and he's a two-time pro bowler, and he's a physical player. He's a guy that can put his hands on you, run with you, catch the ball if it's thrown at you, and break up a play. Max Crosby, Cleve Farrell, uh, 
what we're going to see on the edge with Yannick Ngakwe, and then the core of the linebackers, Nick Witkowski, who played more injured last year than you would imagine. He did. Played more injured than you would think. Nicholas Morrow, who played better than I thought he could play. And then Corey Littleton, who coming into the Raiders last year, you would have thought were, was on the verge of being a potential Pro Bowl player. That's what I was sold. I was sold that. I, I, I bought into Littleton coming in from the Rams. I saw all the video. I saw all the plays behind the line of scrimmage. And it turns out well, he made a lot of those plays because he had Aaron Donald, who's the number one player in the entire NFL. And that opened up Littleton, and the Raiders don't have a player like that in the interior, even though they brought in a couple of players in the interior of that defensive line who might be able to make a play, Solomon Thomas to help out with Quentin Jefferson and Jonathan Hankins. So I think the rotation's going to be there with Max Crosby, Yannick Ngakwe. Can't wait to see what we get out of the new young guys who are here, including Malcolm Kuntz, when he gets in. So I don't think the Raiders' roster on defense is trash. But the media does. Oh, the media does. They have no idea who these guys are. They don't. They don't. They just go to the low-hanging fruit. They kick the Raiders in the you-know-what every time they can because the talking points from the national media is that the Raiders' defense is understaffed as, as a roster. They don't have enough good enough players. The stats back it up. But many people here realize that the Raiders spent a lot of money and time upgrading that defensive roster. When will the media catch up with what Mayock Gruden and Gus Bradley did on the defensive side? When is the media going to catch up? Or is the media not going to catch up until the Ravens game? Where maybe if the Raiders play a great game on defense against the Ravens, they'll be able to maybe get some respect around the league for having an improved defense. My point is, as I wrap up the monologue brought to you by the Henderson Hyundai Superstore, Boulder Highway in Henderson, they have the super deals you're looking for. My point is simply this. The Raiders get no damn freaking respect on defense, nor should they. That's why Gunther's gone and Bradley was brought in. That's why Yannick Ngakwe, who I told you months ago would be here, was brought in. And that's why they spent, after that first pick of Leatherwood, all of their remaining time pretty much on upgrading the defense with hopefully a new starter at free safety who's going to play at a very high level. Until they play and put up a defensive strong performance, they are going to get absolutely no respect from anyone in the media, maybe outside of Las Vegas, where the media here, the guys covering the beat who are very good, understand what's happened to the upgrades of this defense. But I can only talk about it for so long you know, I, I can only talk about it because I want the Raiders to do well. I work on the flagship and the team. I'm not going to sit here and say this roster's trash, A, because I don't believe it, and B, I really believe in what I just told you for the last 20 minutes, that this team is going to be surprisingly better on defense. We're going to know pretty quickly. When you open up against the AFC North with the Ravens and the Steelers, better be ready to punch someone in the mouth. You better be ready to get off the field you better be ready for some of these developmental players who were drafted high, very high by this organization, to show up now and play. Don't care what you're doing on Instagram. Don't care. Want to know what you can do on the field with these new coaches that are here to evaluate this talent and put them and line them up in a better spot. Because Eric Allen had the conversation on the Raiders report 
with Coach Malius about this team and how they're going to line them up and what they're going to do defensively, which should make a difference. Gus Bradley is going to put these defenders in a better place so just on third down they might get the hell off the field and give the ball back to Derek Carr, who can go on a sustained six- or seven-minute drive, moving the chains and keep the other offense on the field. That's really what it is all about, right? Less time for the opposing offense, more time for Derek Carr in his fourth year in John Gruden's system. That's all I got. That's the monologue. Love to hear from you. The line works. Bobby, check the phones. They work. 702-365-9200. 702-365-9200. If you agree or disagree with anything I said, we welcome you to the show. And we can say goodbye to the Golden Knights if you're a Golden Knight fan. And you've been listening to this show as we are brought to you by Iole, the new international award-winning ultra-premium tequila. I always dreamed of having a tequila partner. We have one with Iole. Try it. You'll love it. You'll see it at all the bars in Vegas. They're a proud partner. You see it on the glass at the Golden Knights game. Oh, but I forgot. There's no more Golden Knights games. Oh, you can tell I'm pretty bitter with that. When we come back, Mike Ciani will join us. Really interesting story. Once a Raider, always a Raider on his fine career and his Super Bowl championship with the Silver and Black in Super Bowl XI. A little bit later on at the top of the hour, Vinny Bonsignor. No bells and whistles. I don't have six co-hosts. I don't have a comedy team. I don't have writers. It's just your guy, JT, talking Raiders football on Raider Nation Radio, 920 a.m. This JT the Brick Legends moment is brought to you by M Resort, the official team headquarters hotel of the Las Vegas Raiders. I, I think, you know, we look at multiple things, that consistency, to do things over and over again. And, um, you know, we always talk about to the players, it's not the call, the players bring the calls to life. And so when we look at the front, you know, how many of them are bringing the call to life more times than not? And, um, you know, we, we, we just got to have that rush up front and uh, it, it's so critical to any team. And, um, you know, I, th- I think, uh, you know, as we continue to evaluate these guys, the consistency and how they play the run and the pass, you know, a fourth quarter rush, a two minute rush is so important, especially what happened from last year, right? And I think that's where the depth and we've got to have, you know, two groups that we really can count on to keep our guys fresh so when those situations occur, you know, we take advantage of them. That's Gus Bradley. This Raiders legend segment brought to you by the M Spawn Resort. We do a lot at the M. Uh, head on out there and you will see Raider legends there all the time during this season. Uh, Mike Ciani, kind enough to join us, former Raider wide receiver, the pride of Staten Island through Villanova. Mike, good to talk to you again. How are you? Hey, I'm great, JT. How are you? Boy, not too many people know about Staten Island. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm a Long Island guy. You know, Staten Island wasn't that far away from me. And we begin with the early part of your career. What a great baseball career you had and football career. Where was the big decision to play multiple sports back in that era and how you excelled at both? Well, JT, you know, I uh, coming out of high school, um, I had probably 90 to 100 scholarship offers, and 
Villanova was one of the few schools that was going to let me play both football and baseball. All the other schools wanted me just to focus on football. And, you know, when I was 17, 18 years old, I liked baseball just as much as I liked football. So they gave me the opportunity to play both. When you got to Villanova as a football player, what was your style of play coming out of high school and how did you evolve? Strong, big, running routes. What was that evolution like for you before you were drafted by the Raiders? Well, it's interesting you say that because when I was in high school, we actually ran a single wing, so I was a tight end more than a wide receiver. We didn't throw that much. And then when I got to Villanova, you know, they made me a wide receiver, and I was able to use probably my size, you know, at, at 6'3", and I, when I was in at Villanova, I think I probably played at about 210. Uh, so I was able to use my size uh, more than anything uh, as a wide receiver. Mike Ciani is our guest. So, Mike, you come out of college, you come to the Raiders, 72, first-round pick, number 21 overall, to an unbelievable great team, and a, a team that was being snake-bit, winning a lot of games, but losing some very big games. And you come in and have this incredible rookie year, runner-up with Franco for rookie of the year. It was very hard at that time for rookies to come in with the Raiders and establish themselves that quickly. How were you able to do it? <laughs> Well, um, it was interesting, JT, because Freddie Bolitnikoff was the veteran. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a, a guy named Warren Wells, who had been a tremendous wide receiver. And then, for some reason, um, he, he showed up at camp, and then he left camp, and then he never came back again. And Cliff Branch and I were drafted the same year. So we played for years with just Freddie, Cliff, and myself. And you either got in there and, and did it or you got cut or, you, you know, you went to and you got mm -hmm. traded to another team. So we, we had Freddie on one side. Nobody was going to replace him. So Cliff and I kind of switched back and forth. Uh, of course, Al always liked, you know, the receiver who can go deep, which was Cliff, and then the, the possession receiver, you know, both Freddie and I. And so that's pretty much how it evolved. In fact, I kid with Tom Flores once in a while when I see Tom, and I said, you had the best job in the NFL. You only had to coach three guys, Fred Bolitnikoff, <laughs> Cliff Branch, and myself. <laughs> Mike Ciani, that is so good. And, Mike, I can imagine what it must have been like to learn from Fred Bolitnikoff at that stage with the, all the success that he had and still being the primary target there until Cliff developed and you developed. What did you learn from Fred Bolitnikoff as a practice player every day as you were developing with the Raiders? That's a, that's a great question, JT. Um, you know, you watch veterans like that, and they're true professionals. Uh, you know, they, they go out and they, they work hard every day. Uh, they repeat the same things over and over and over and over again during practice. So when you get into a game, it's just second nature. You just do it. And, and you know, so we would get out there and we'd watch Freddie and we'd, we would, you know, watch his steps and watch how he moved his body and how he tilted and how he played, uh, you know, his weight, how he leaned one way or leaned the other. Um, another thing I, I learned from both Freddie and uh, uh, Kenny Stabler, uh, I was watching him one day hit the speed bag. We had a speed bag outside uh, right near the practice field, and I said, what do you hit that for? And they said, this is the best 
exercise you can do for good eye-hand coordination. I never realized that. And, mm-hmm. and so we started hitting, Cliff and I started hitting the speed bag also, and it helped tremendously. Mike Ciani is our guest, Raiders 72-77, to 77, a Super Bowl victory. What was it like, those private moments with the snake, Kenny Stabler, LaMonica, Stabler waiting for his opportunity to play, and knowing that Stabler would go on to be a Hall of Famer, one of the all-time recognized quarterbacks in NFL history, what were those struggles like when Snake was looking to get on the field and you would have, I would assume, Mike, I'm assuming this, have some extra practice time and work together as you were both evolving? Well, when I first got there in 72, when Cliff and I first got there, JT, we actually had three pretty good quarterbacks. Yes. You had Daryl Monica, who was a starter. George Blanda was still playing, doing mostly kicking, but George would get out and, and throw during practice every day, and then Snake. And um, uh, Daryl was a starter uh, through most of my first year and most of, half of my second year. And, of course, you know, Snake brought us back in that Pittsburgh playoff mm. game, that immaculate reception uh, game, and he, he – at that point, he showed the leadership qualities that he had because we had really done nothing the whole game on offense. And boom, he comes in and takes us 80 yards you know, in less than two minutes to score a touchdown. And he scored the touchdown to put us ahead before that uh, not-so-immaculate deception, as yes. I call it. Um, well, it's in- so it must, yep. have been, it must have been hard for Snake. Um, but he was a very patient man, and he learned a lot, I guess, watching Daryl. And he and George were very close. Uh, George would really mentor a snake. And, and I used to kid Kenny, and i say, you know, the only reason why, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why you're going to get into the Hall of Fame is because when you throw it, I catch it. <laughs> okay, I don't <laughs> drop it. <laughs> and he said, Mike, if you don't catch it, I've got about three or four other guys I can throw sure. to, so you better catch it. <laughs> Mike Ciani is our guest. Mike, I always see you and the connection you have with Foo, uh, Phil Villapiano. What was the nightlife like? What was training camp like? I mean, we always hear about you guys the night. I've talked to Freddie, and I talked to Snake about this when he was alive. You know, how loose you were. Madden wanted you to play like hell, be on time, and play like hell on Sunday. But a Saturday night or a Friday night before a home game, do you look back on those times and how much fun you had, even though you guys were playing still at a very high level? Yeah, JT. Um, you know, Phil, if you put a gave Phil Villapiano a uniform today, he'd still go out and play. Yes. Okay. That's how that's how crazy he is, and um, you know some of the things we did at training camp. It, it, involved nothing about football it was so many other things we had a bowling tournament during training camp we had an air hockey tournament during training camp we had a parade in town up in santa rosa for no reason at all we just put on a parade um we had all these other things going on and john only asked us to do three things show up on time pay attention, and then play your ass off on Sunday. That's really all he cared about. And so, you know, these guys, first of all, I don't know if they were controllable. You know, you get a guy like Snake or, you know, some of these other guys, 
they're going to go out and they're going to party hard every night and they're going to show up for practice every single day. You know, they never miss a practice. And then on Sunday, they play as, as hard and as, as best as that they could. Mike Ciani is our guest. Take me through 76 season on the run to the Super Bowl, your fondest memories, <clears throat> excuse me, with that unit and how you all came together with enormous pressure to finally break through after the immaculate deception, as you talked about, and the tough losses and broke through to win the Super Bowl. Oh, well, you know, JT, that, that immaculate reception, uh, that was my rookie season. So we lose to Pittsburgh in the uh, playoffs. The next year we beat Pittsburgh, we go to Miami, and we lose to Miami uh, in the AFC championship game. The next year we lose to Pittsburgh again in the AFC championship game. The next year we lose again to Pittsburgh in the AFC championship oh. game. So the, fi- the fifth year... We finally get them at home, and and we beat them. And, of course, you know, their excuse was, well, we didn't have Franco, and we didn't have Rocky Blyer. They were both hurt that game. Well, we were going to beat anybody that day. That, to us, was the Super Bowl. Um, because in August, when we showed up for training camp, John, one of the things John told us was, we have to beat Pittsburgh. I, he said, I don't care who we beat, but if we're going to get to the Super Bowl, we got to beat the Steelers. So that beating, and I mean we beat them up pretty good, um, was the most satisfying, gratifying win of the season. You know, Mike, a lot of young players, as we wrap this up, or a lot of young fans, excuse me, they don't understand the difference between this organization having three Super Bowl victories and having six or seven, and that was your era, 72, 3, 4, 5, all those games that you talked about, the winner of that final game in the AFC was going to win the Super Bowl, and it was the difference between a Steelers dynasty and the Raiders having won Super Bowl. Looking back on that, I mean, I know you've been able to come to grips with that, but how do you come to grips with it, knowing you just played in the biggest games, the most impactful games, and maybe, I believe, the greatest era, the 70s in the history of the NFL? Well, I don't know if you ever come to grips with it, JT. I mean, I still am upset at, you know, first of all, the Immaculate Reception. And then after we won our first Super Bowl, we get to the AFC Championship game the following year. And we beat uh, the Baltimore Colts in that famous uh, ghost-to-the-post play, double overtime. And now we go to Denver. And we're beating Denver to get to the Super Bowl again. Jack Tatum picks up a fumble and runs it 90 yards for a touchdown to clinch the, the, the win, and the referees blow the whistle dead. They said, oh, the ball you know, was on the ground or the whistle had blown or something like that. So we could have gotten to another Super Bowl then, seven in a row. And that's the only year, by the way, that an NFC team won the Super Bowl from 1970 to 1980, the Dallas Cowboys yeah. beat the Broncos. We should have been there and beat the Dallas Cowboys again in another Super Bowl. Yeah, the Rob Lytle fumble. Mike, what are you doing exactly. now? What's going on with your life? Uh, what's it like? Where are you? I think you're, you're back east again. What are you doing now? Yeah, I, I am uh, back in North Carolina now, JT. Um, I spend some time in California mm-hmm. uh, with my family, my, my three children or three adults and five grandchildren. They're all in the a Southern California area. Um, I had 
I had really thought about moving to Las Vegas from Southern California uh, last year before you know, the Phone's breaking up there, Mike. Talk into the phone. We're losing you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, now we got you. Go ahead. Yep. I'm sorry. Um, You know, and and, and so I'm back in uh, North Carolina and um, just kind of taking it easy. I work part-time at a golf course, play golf two, three times a week. And um, looking forward to this NFL season because I want to see the Raiders finally kick some ass. Awesome. We're looking forward to seeing you and hosting you out here. The alumni department uh, loves you. And obviously, we got to have a drink at Philip Biano's bar inside Allegiant Stadium. No surprise there. Hey, let me wrap it up, Mike. You got the legacy brick from Mark Davis. What does that mean to you? Uh, that means a lot. In fact, I was out there probably back in, in March and uh, saw that and took some pictures. It's really great. And it's, you know, it's, it's great the way Mark continues to um, include the uh, the former players. We're not old players. We're just former players, uh, JT. And, you know, he looks after us. Uh, we're constantly getting things uh, from the alumni department and, and, you know, asking us to be involved in this and that. And, and of course, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I look forward to seeing him. Hopefully he's going to be at the Hall of Fame in August when Tom Flores uh, gets you know, inducted or enshrined, so I'm going to be there myself. Are you going to be there? I will be there, so I'm looking forward. My wife and I will be there, and we look forward to celebrating with Coach Flores and you, Mike. So we'll catch up there, and uh, then we'll see you for a game or two out here during the regular season. Thanks so much for doing this. You mean everything to the team. Thrilled that I could interview you today. Okay. Thanks for thinking of me and remembering me, JT. (laughs) You got it. Well, no, that's for sure. Thanks, Mike. This is the alumni department and what they do, setting up these legends. If you're out there, I know you are and you're listening. If you got a story about Mike Ciani, one of the most respected Raider champions, the impact that he had in his rookie season, in his first year in Oakland, 1972, drafted number 21 overall, set multiple rookie team records, and was the runner-up for Rookie of the Year to Franco Harris. Think of that. And, you know, he played with uh, Freddie and Cliff, and then Cliff exploded to be one of the greatest players of all time. Mike uh, moved on to Baltimore as Raymond Chester came back to the Raiders. So he was a part of that uh, trade there that happened then. So if you look at all of this, Mike Ciani was a hell of a player when he came into the league, and one of the most important Raiders – when it came to the 70s era as a teammate inside the organization and on the field. We appreciate Mike Ciani joining us. Once a Raider, always a Raider. Brought to you by the M Resort and Spa. Nice. Good to talk to him. And we'll see him in Canton. And I hope a lot of Raider Nation is booking their trip. Charles Woodson and Tom Flores will be in this extended class for the Hall of Fame. Can't wait to be out there in August. This is Raider Nation Radio, 920 a.m.
like hell, but he certainly had a big bite. And that's a dangerous bite. He put his ear. He's out. He bit his ear. I can see the bite mark. He bit his ear. He's out. Tell Mark Ratner, head of the commission. Well, let me ask the guy. He bit his ear. Can you can he go on? Yes. Okay. It's going to be a two-point deduction. The fight will go on. A very angry Evander Holyfield now. A left hook. You know, it's funny. Mike was having his best friend. He bit him again. He bit him again. Mike Tyson has bitten Evander Holyfield for the second time. And it is all out of war. I'll tell you what, this is unbelievable. Wow, that was 24 years ago today, Tyson Holyfield to bite night. I was there ringside for that, and I put it in my book. I had a whole chapter in my book, The Handoff, on the impact that that had. That had on my life in sports and in Vegas. I have never seen anything like that. Everybody says that when you've never seen anything like that. And we'll ne- we have never seen anything like that again. So as I sat ringside, and I'm talking ringside, I was only 20 rows back. That's when it was one of the first big fights that I had ringside seats for. And I'll never forget that moment when the bite happened. And then the fight started to deteriorate. And I remember looking around and how nervous everybody was in the MGM Grand Garden. There was a lot of nerves going because everybody saw the fight deteriorating. And when they stopped the fight and there was bedlam in the ring, I remember being there and looking around and saying, oh, my God, there's going to be a riot. This was one of the first times at a major sporting event where I thought there was going to be a riot. And I remember looking up to the rafters. They had a section of bleachers. And I remember seeing a woman in a dress, uh, in a dress coming down face first. She was falling down face first in the bleachers. And there were fights, and the ring was bedlam. And Tyson was on the edge of the apron of the ring, and he was staring at us towards press row. And I remember the look on his face. He looked like a lion that got out of a cage and could literally kill you, like he could come into the crowd and kill you, and bedlam in the ring. And I found my way off the floor, and I knew the MGM well, and I had to be on the radio with Steve Cofield. Steve Cofield and I, sports fan radio, we're going to do a segment up at the sports book at the MGM Grand. And I got up there, and I put the headset on, and Steve said, what happened? And I said, there's a riot. It's bedlam. It's crazy. Bite night. He bit his ear. And then all of a sudden, I'm at the sports book, and I look in the distance, and I see hundreds of people running. True story. Running through the casino, flipping over blackjack tables. Complete riot. And took the headset. Three girls came, got underneath our headset, crying in complete panic, and then the rest of the night was bedlam. You've never seen more police officers in your life ever show up at the MGM. 24 years ago tonight, bite night in Vegas.